Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. That's Joe Apt and Jeremy Smith playing so aptly on the piano this morning, so we appreciate that. Thanks for leading us. If you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're in chapter 11, and if you're kind of new or visiting today, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible Gospel, the Gospel of John, but the Sunday before Reformation Day, we kind of launched into a series that we entitled Lazarus and the Tulip. Lazarus and the Tulip. And what I've been doing is just explaining the doctrines of grace, uh, what those doctrines mean theologically, where we find them in the Bible, uh, how we see those doctrines of grace taught clearly throughout the Gospel of John specifically. And then we've been illustrating each one of those doctrinal points by looking at the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. And so this morning, we're going to wrap up our study. So we're in part five of Lazarus and the Tulip. And uh, so we'll start off by just looking at John 11, 38 through 44 to be reminded of our key text here, and then we'll jump into our time together this morning. John writes this, John 11, 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity of singing songs about Christ, worshiping our Lord and Savior, being encouraged by the beautiful music and just our time here together. And Father, I pray as we look at your word today, that you would encourage us about these doctrines of grace. I pray, God, that we would be overwhelmed with the love that you've shown to us through Christ and that we would persevere to the very end, all by grace and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, again, we're wrapping up our series on TULIP, and I hope that our study on the doctrines of grace has encouraged your heart I hope that it's clarified some things for you. I hope that you've been amazed as we've looked at these doctrines of salvation. And I pray that you've come to a deeper understanding of the beauty of God's sovereignty in salvation. If God is not sovereign over salvation, then that means that you are sovereign over your own salvation. And if you are sovereign over your own salvation, then I have bad news for you this morning. You would have never chosen God. You would have never, ever reached out to him if left to your own devices. You and I, as human beings, were born into sin. David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And because of our sinful condition, we were spiritually dead. We had dead hearts, dead minds, and dead works. And the only thing that was alive was our desire to sin. If we did have a free will, it was only free to pick and choose what kind of sin we wanted to do. We thought we were free 
and, and able to do as we pleased, but we were really in bondage to our sinful desires. And one thing is for sure, the mind that is set on the flesh is death. And the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And the mind that is set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law, according to Romans 8, verse 7. And this is why Martin Luther wrote what he deemed to be his most important work. It was a book entitled The Bondage of the Will. It's a classic Reformation book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. It sounds daunting because it's written by Martin Luther, and it's The Bondage of the Will, but it's actually not too difficult of a read. And so if you've never read that, I would commend that to you. And at the heart of Luther's theology was the conviction that human beings are totally dependent on God's sovereign grace to rescue sinners from the bondage of their will to sin. And the debates of the 16th century that really continue until today about the freedom of the will versus the bondage of the will were not peripheral to the Reformation. They were at the heart of the issue. And free will has no place in Reformed theology. And Luther believed that the whole gospel of the grace of God in salvation stands or falls with this issue. And he affirmed that our total inability to save ourselves and that it is the sovereignty of divine grace that determines our salvation. Luther said this is the very heart of the gospel. And what I want you to see this morning is that the doctrines of grace either stand together or they fall together. Each doctrine of grace serves as a pillar to understand our salvation in Christ. And if you remove a single, a single pillar, the whole of salvation that's based on grace alone comes crashing down. If you believe in total depravity, then you know that in your dead spiritual state that you would not and you could not choose God. And if you believe in unconditional election, then you affirm that before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ. It was not based on anything that you would do, but based on his foreknowledge and on his predetermined plan, he elected you to be his child. And if you believe in limited atonement, then you know there was a particular purpose for which Christ died to secure the salvation of the elect by his blood. And if you believe in irresistible grace, then you know that it was his grace that regenerated your heart and transformed your will to make you want to come to God who created you and who loved you, and through the sacrifice of his son, he saved you. And all of this leads us to this P in TULIP, the perseverance of the saints, which in short is the belief that God will preserve you by grace to the very end. Now, oddly enough, while the doctrines of grace are hotly debated among Christians, almost all evangelicals agree on this final point, the perseverance of the saints. And my whole point of kind of spelling this out for you is that the foundation of the perseverance of the saints is built on the first four points of TULIP. If you take an alternate view of especially total depravity or unconditional election or irresistible grace, then you really don't have the foundation to accept the perseverance of the saints. I mean, if you are saved by your own free will, then you must be held by your own free will. But if you are saved by God's electing grace, then you are preserved by his sustaining grace. 
Maybe you've heard the phrase, you've got to dance with the one who brought you. Or in the South, they like to say, you've got to dance with the one that brung you. And all they're saying when they say that phrase, I heard that like a thousand times in my eight years in Texas. But what, they say, what, what that means is basically you need to be considerate and loyal to the one who helped you get to where you are. Meaning that you can't just hold on to the perseverance of the saints and ignore the other doctrines that led up to it. Each one of these doctrines of grace point to God's sovereignty and to your sin and your need for him to intervene in your life. You either get the whole picture or you don't. And my prayer is that this series has helped you better understand the beauty and the blessing of having a higher view of God's work and salvation and a lower view of yourself. For years, I would pat myself on the back thinking, well, I finally decided to make a good choice when I decided that I wanted to invite Jesus in my heart and become a good Christian because that's what I wanted to do. And what's the problem with all of that? It's too much I, too much my, too much kind of little pat on the back. I'm thankful for the Lord, but man, I'm glad I made a good decision. If you're not careful, we can fall into that. And what these doctrines of grace try to remind us of is that you're nothing and you got nothing to offer God except your sin. And it's God by his amazing grace that saved you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I believe that this doctrine, these doctrines of grace really humble us and they put us in our place and they cause us to respond to his grace with outbursts of joy and appreciation and excitement. God is everything and we are nothing. God is holy and we are sinners. God has been alive forever and we've only been made alive when he made us alive together with Christ. And this was all of his doing and we can take no credit for the fact that he saved us and has promised us eternal life. And so let's dive in one last time to look at this reassuring doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And so we'll kind of follow that same template we've been looking at throughout this series, what it means, where it's taught in John, and how it can be illustrated in the life and resurrection of Lazarus. And so first, how do we understand this doctrine? I have a definition for you there with a couple of blanks. Perseverance of the saints teaches that those who were born again will continue trusting in Christ and bearing the fruit of the Spirit throughout their lifetime. And so the idea of perseverance of the saints is that you will continue. It's by grace, and you'll continue to trust in Christ and bear the fruit of the Spirit throughout your entire lifetime. A second sentence there in that definition says, and God, by his own power, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, keeps or preserves the believer forever. And so I'm saying the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints kind of has a, has a two-coined emphasis. One is you'll continue to bear fruit throughout your life as you persevere. And the other is God preserves you by his grace and he will never let go. And he'll be working in you to bear the fruit that he's prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. So you continue and he keeps. It's a work of grace. Now writing to the Philippians, Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the perseverance of the saints. This is God's work, that he who began that work 
way back in unconditional election and the foreknowledge of God before he created the world will continue all throughout the execution of salvation at your regeneration, and he'll continue that all the way to your glorification. And this is the promise that what God starts in your soul, he intends to finish. And so the old axiom in Reformed theology about the perseverance of the saints is this. If you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, then you will never lose it. If you lose it, then you never had it. It would be like a person who says, I know how to dance. And they have affirmed the fact that they like to dance and they talked in a roundabout way about the different moves and choreography of their dance. And you assumed from all that you heard from this person that they were a good dancer. And then the day of the big dance finally comes and this person shows up, but they don't enter into the dance because it finally becomes clear that they can't dance at all. There's no ability there's no action, there's no desire, there's no dancing. So we could ask the question, what happened? Well, I would say this person never had it. They never had the ability to dance. They didn't lose it, they just didn't ever have it. Like most of us white folk, you know what I'm saying? You just <laughs> never had it. You could talk about it all you want, but if it's not played out into your life, then it may be that you never had it. We know that many people make profession of faith. They, they turn and walk away sometimes from those professions, and sometimes they even recant their faith altogether, and that simply means that they never had saving faith in the first place. The apostle John notes that there were those who left the company of disciples, and he says of them, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Famous couple of passages, right, that we turn to. Why did they walk away? Why didn't they dance? Because they never had it. They never had saving faith. And of course, they were with the disciples in terms of outward appearances, but then they departed. And there's many people who joined the visible church, but then they depart. They, they made an outward profession of faith, and Jesus makes it clear that it is possible for a person to do this even when he doesn't possess true saving faith. I mean, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Jesus even warns us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, on that last day, he says, many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? But Jesus will send them away saying, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That's what he says. He doesn't say, they say, we knew you, we did all these works. He says, no, you didn't, and I never knew you. He did not say, I knew you for a season, and then you went sour and betrayed me. No, instead, Jesus is saying, you were never part of my body. You were never part of my church. You were never part of saving faith. The, the whole purpose of God's election is to bring his people safely to heaven. And therefore, what he starts, he promises to finish. And he not only initiates the Christian life, but the Holy Spirit is with us as the convictor and as the sanctifier and as the helper to ensure our preservation. And so let's talk for a moment about 
some of the misunderstandings of the perseverance of the saints. And so I want to give you three statements of what the perseverance of the saints means so that we don't get confused, right? So your next blank says this. Number one, perseverance is ultimately a work of God in you and not a treadmill that you run on. Ultimately, it's a work of God in you. It's not a treadmill that you run on. This clears up the uncertainty of classical Arminianism. You'll remember classical Arminianism teaches in a universal prevenient grace, a conditional election, an unlimited atonement, a resistible grace, and the uncertainty of perseverance. And so classical Arminianism, by its definition, teaches that you can lose your salvation. There's an uncertainty of perseverance that's taught in that particular view. They would teach that you can be saved and then that you can fall from saving grace. And at any time in the life of a believer, they can lose their salvation and return to their unconverted state. Now, this is classical Arminianism. Most people in evangelicalism that identify as Arminian deny that doctrine. But that's how that doctrine was taught by Jacob Arminius, as we studied back earlier in our series about the initial debate that was going on between Arminianism and Calvinism. They believe that there's no assurance of salvation and that God's grace would ever persevere somebody to the very end. They just say that can't be. And the reason for this view is that if it is your will that saves you, then it must be your will that sustains you. And if you decided to become a Christian on your own, then you can at any moment on your own undecide to be a Christian. But this is not true of saving grace at all. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Here's a passage that maybe helps clarify this point for us as we read in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So a lot of Arminian-minded people might look at that and say, well, see there, we've been obeying, we need to keep obeying, and we've got it. we're responsible to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and yet we forget it's in the context of 12 and 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so in this passage, Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers that just as they have always obeyed, just as they first came to Christ, they should keep coming to Christ. And just as they were obedient in the beginning, they should continue in their obedience and that it should not matter if the apostle Paul is there or if he's absent because they live and they do what they do for the Lord. And this word work, it's included here in these verses, is, 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 is the, the definition of that word is to work out your own salvation means this, to bring about a result by doing something. It can also mean to be successful in the face of obstacles. And what Paul is, is saying here, he's not, he's not saying that you need to work to earn your salvation. He's saying that the work you do evidences your salvation. It, it shows the result of your salvation. You, you can successfully live for Christ in the midst of various obstacles that you may face in your life. Now, you have a responsibility to love God and to obey God with the utmost respect and in awe of the fact that you belong to God. And because you belong to God, the next verse reminds us, for it is God 
who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. In other words, you are called to work in humility and in service to our Lord, but he is the one who provides the desire. He is the one that provides the drive. He's the one that provides the ability in you, and he's working in you. It is, it is God who is ultimately willing and working in your heart and through your service to glorify him. He saves you, and now he is involved in sanctifying you. And it pleases him when you serve him, and it pleases God when he's working in you for his own glory and satisfaction. And so these verses, again, should be just a reminder to us that our life is not a treadmill. It, it is a treasure of grace that is preserving us and perfecting us so that the perseverance of the saints is not us trying to accomplish our salvation by our own effort, never knowing if we've done enough to keep our status, but rather perseverance of the saints is God saving us and sustaining us, and this grace compels us to do what he's called us to do in his strength and for his glory. I would say this, that if you do struggle with the assurance of your salvation, chances are you're thinking more like an Arminian than you are like a Calvinist. Uh, people who struggle with their assurance oftentimes place too much of an emphasis on their obedience and on their will and on their spiritual run on the treadmill and not enough of an emphasis on the righteousness of Christ who finished the race for you. God never encourages his own to doubt their salvation. God never encourages his elect to double guess whether or not they've done enough to prove that they are saved. You don't have to prove anything to God or anyone else. He knows who you are, and he knows whose you are. An assurance of salvation is not gained by being on the treadmill and running, doing more, trying harder from your point of view. Assurance of salvation is gained by looking at Christ and by looking at his life and by looking at his sacrifice. It's 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. These verses say it this way, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I've told you before that 1 John, to me, is a book, a beautiful book, about the assurance of salvation for believers. It's not written to cause believers to doubt whether or not they pass all the tests. It's written for believers to be assured of their salvation based on the reality of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh and who unites us with the Father by his work. And if you want assurance of your salvation, then you have to look at what Christ has done, not at what you're doing. Not for the primary assurance that we long for. Christ was, was, was the answer to that problem of assurance, right? Christ was born to the Virgin Mary as fully God and fully man. Jesus lived a perfect life and never sinned. Jesus obeyed all that the Father called him to do. He died on a cross, and he was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he's interceding for his own at this very moment. And what I'm saying to you this morning, church, is that your primary assurance must be found in looking to Christ. He is your advocate. He is your atonement. He is your defense attorney. He is your substitute. He is your sacrifice. He is your savior. 
Look nowhere else. Don't look into Christian school. Don't look into how many verses you can memorize. Don't look at your church membership as assurance of your salvation. Look to Christ. It's him. It's him alone that gives us that primary assurance. And that's Colossians 2, 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And typically, again, when people are struggling with assurance, or yeah, they're, they're saying things like, yeah, but I don't know if I've done enough. Yeah, but I don't know if I really believed. Yeah, but I don't know if I'm a real Christian. Yeah, but I don't know if God elected me. It's like, forget all of that. It's God's work in you for you to look to Christ, and as you're looking to Christ, he regenerates your heart, and he changes you from the inside, and his spirit confirms with your spirit that you are a child of God. Stop evaluating all the things in your life as the primary means of assurance. The primary means of assurance are always, it's always about looking to Christ and being comforted by the grace he provides. It's, it's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not a gift of, it's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I wouldn't add to scripture, but I would also say if I did add to scripture, so no one would boast and no one would worry about it if they haven't done enough. See what we're saying? Right? We're saying that you just got to look to grace, the grace of God in Christ alone. And so that's primary assurance. Now, secondary assurance is also important. Sometimes you get a first mortgage and some of us need a second mortgage to make it all work, right? So secondary insurance is examining your life to make sure that you are living for Jesus. Because there are verses in the Bible that tell us exactly that. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So there are verses in the scripture that say, yeah, we need to examine our life and we need to test ourselves." But that will never give you primary assurance because you're always going to fall up short. I would say that you should obey this verse of testing yourselves, but not as your primary assurance. It's a secondary assurance. Primary assurance is always looking to Christ. Your secondary assurance is by examining your life in light of scripture, in the mirror of God's word to see whether or not you've truly been changed. Once a son, always a son. Once a daughter, always a daughter. True sons and daughters of God will never be disowned by him. And the way that they keep their status is not by their performance, but by the preserving grace of God in their lives. And so if you're here and you're running on the treadmill, I want you to understand better the work of persevering faith in your life, the perseverance of the saints, so you can get off the treadmill and rest in Christ. It's Christ in, in uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, right? Come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you what? Rest. It's what we're talking about. Another misunderstanding of the perseverance of the saints that I want to clarify is this. Number two, perseverance is not easy believism, but it is lordship salvation. Uh, the reason I prefer the term perseverance of the saints over once saved, always saved, which is how I grew up understanding this doctrine, was like, oh, once saved, always saved. Because once saved, always saved can make it sound like my ongoing life doesn't matter. Some people may say something like, well, I've got my fire insurance. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I've walked down the aisle and I've joined the church, so I'm good, right? And the problem 
with that kind of thinking that sometimes once saved, always saved lends itself to is that it can make it sound like I'm all set. Now I can live however I want. Uh, I've had people tell me things like this. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, so that's my fire insurance. I know I'm not going to hell, but I haven't made him Lord yet. I mean, I grew up in a youth group where that was like the common popular thing. Well, I finally made the big decision to be a Christian, but I'm not made him my Lord just yet. It's like, well, why would you even say that? Like, what is that? Like, I'm coming halfway to Jesus? Like, I want him to save me, but I want to live life however I want, and maybe I'll come to know him as Lord later. What's the matter with this kind of thinking? Well, Jesus didn't come just to save you. He came to transform you. Jesus didn't come to offer a faith that doesn't work, but a faith that does work. Jesus didn't come to save you and then leave you in your carnality. He came to save you and to purify you and to cleanse you and to renew you and to change your desires to where you would want to follow. You would want to obey. You would want to surrender in every area of your life to your Lord and Master. He came to remove every spot and wrinkle or any such thing that you may be holy and blameless. In fact, turn with me to Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 through 14, a great reminder of this, that God came to save us, it's all by grace, but he also came to purify us, and Titus 2, 11 through 14 reads like this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, does that sound like a once saved, always saved emphasis? Or does it sound a little bit more like, hey, if you've been saved by grace, you're going to persevere in grace, and that's going to keep purifying you and cleansing you throughout your life because we want you zealous the Bible wants us zealous to do good works. And so this passage is saying that when the grace of God appears to you through the gospel, that he brings you to salvation. And as he brought you to salvation, God begins training you to renounce ungodliness and all worldly passions. And Jesus gave himself to you to redeem you, to purify you, and to cause you to be zealous for good works. And so perseverance of the saints is not a prayer that you pray. It is the sovereign work of God to save you and to purify you and to enable you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And if you say, I believe in Jesus, but you are not walking in obedience to God's word, then that kind of faith doesn't save you. And that's James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? What do we say about all the people in evangelicalism who say, well, I'm a believer, but I'm going to still live however I want when it comes to my sex life. I'm a believer, but I'm going to still live however I want when it comes to everything else in my life because that's my prerogative and my freedom and none of us are perfect anyway. No, no, no. When someone is saved by a genuine faith, which is a gift from God, then it changes that person and they begin to obey Christ and walk in obedience to Christ. Otherwise, it's not true saving faith. That's why James continues in 2.26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
You ever been to a funeral and seen a casket up at the front of the church? We don't do that a whole lot anymore, but I remember as a kid, I'd go to funerals and the casket's right there. And we were called to pay our respects to the body. And we would walk up with my mom and dad. I'd be trembling like this. Oh, man, we got to go see this dead person up there. And you walk up and you look down. And I remember one time my dad was like, why don't you just touch him? Because my dad's a biology teacher. So he's trying to teach me something. He's like, it's okay. You could, I want you to touch him. I reach out my hand, you know, touch this dead person. You know, and then you realize, like, oh, they're not here. Like, that's not really them. Like, that person's dead. Like, the real them is gone. And just as clear as that is in our mind, like James 2, 26 again says, the body apart from the spirit is dead. We get that, right? The body's totally dead apart from the spirit. Well, guess what? In the same way, faith apart from works is dead. Like that faith doesn't save anybody because the faith of a true Christian, which is all given by the grace of God, begins to bear fruit in your life. And so are you saved this morning? Do you have that kind of faith? Are you submitting to God and his word as it bears fruit in your life. A third misunderstanding that I'd like to clarify this morning, number three, perseverance does not prevent suffering, but brings you through suffering. Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, I, I, I was saved. I became a believer. God's going to watch over me, right? So why am I going through a tough time? Well, First Peter the epistle of 1 Peter does a good job addressing this. It's all about suffering. It's all about a believer finding their joy in the midst of their suffering and submitting to God's sovereignty even in difficult times. If you have a rough boss or rough government or even a rough husband, there's all of these analogies in 1 Peter about you got to just keep trusting God. You know why? Because God has secured an inheritance for you which is imperishable and it's undefiled and it's unfading. And this, this, this uh, inheritance is protected by the power of God and the inheritance that God has for you is eternal life but just because you've been promised eternal life doesn't mean that you won't go through tough times life can be difficult you could lose your job you could you could lose your home it could burn down in the fires right you you could get cancer some other debilitating disease your friends could make fun of you your children could walk away. You could be struggling with a particular class in school. Your marriage could be a wreck. You could be discouraged in multiple relationships or things going on in your life. But guess what? If you're his, you're his. And just because he's promised to save you doesn't mean you won't go through a tough time. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter 5 at the end of that epistle. 1 Peter 5.10 just tells us the reality here. 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, like Peter's just talking to believers, he's like, hey, we're all going to go through it, so I might as well address this. After you guys have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so there's four verbs there. I love these four verbs at the end of that verse. He will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. This word restore means to mend. It means to repair. It's the same word that was used of them preparing their nets, mending, uh, repairing and mending their nets. It's a reminder that suffering is hard. Persecution is tough, but God's got you. He's mending you and he's repairing you and he's restoring you every day. And not only is God restoring you, but that next word there says he's confirming you. 
To confirm you means to support you. It means to make a decision with finality. In other words, God has already decided to elect you and to save you. Therefore, you are his. You're confirmed. Sometimes when I'm traveling, I may check on my flight to see if I'm all set. And I love it when I get that email or that text to say, your flight is confirmed. No need to do anything. And I'm just like, yes, I'm on the flight. I got it. Right? And this is what God does for us. He confirms us that you are on your way to heaven, that he has an inheritance prepared for you that's God's work of confirming you. And not only does he do that, but the third word there in 1 Peter 5.10 is that he strengthens you. Uh, this means that he, he makes you strong. It actually means that he imparts strength to you. He gives you his power. He enables you to bear up under your trial in his strength. He doesn't abandon you. He comes alongside of you in the conflict. Now, one of my greatest joys of being a parent was just teaching our little toddlers how to walk. I mean, you remember those days where a little child didn't quite have enough strength on their own two legs, and they're kind of teetering and tottering, and they reach up to the couch and the coffee table, and then you just put out that finger. Don't you love that part? You just put that finger right there, and they're like, <laughs> they grab that finger, and you kind of lead them around the room. That's you imparting strength to them. It can be difficult sometimes in our life, but God, he's holding us. And he's leading us and he's walking us throughout life with the strength that he provides. The last word there is the word establishes you. This means that God places you in a secure and defensive position so that the attacks of the devil and the trials of life will not displace or dislodge you. It's you're your hunkered down or you're, you dug in, right, in his grace and he's placed you there. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can detach you from his grip on you. Nothing can cut you off from your position as his child. This is the perseverance of the saints. It's God's hold on you, and he will never let go. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It's just a reminder, right? If you are in Christ, that is true of you today. You will not be crushed. You will not be struck down. The life of Jesus is being manifested in your body and in your life every single day. Well, that's the perseverance of the saints. Now I want to show you how this doctrine of perseverance of the saints is taught throughout the gospel of John, all right? How is it taught in John? Seven things here. We'll just look at them quickly, but number one, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. They will not perish, but will have eternal life. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This means that if you believe in Christ today with all of your heart and with all of your mind, then you will never die. You will be given life and life eternal. Please note that this is not a a 10-day life. This is not a a 10-year life. You know, people try to sell you life insurance based on 10 or 20 or 30 years, and then it's done. Then you're on your own. We'll protect your life up to this point, then we're done. That's not what this is. This is eternal life. It's not 10 days. It's not 10 years. It's not 10,000 years. This is forever and ever and ever. This is eternal life. It's John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God 
remains on him. Even in that passage of John 3.36, there's a reminder, if you really believe, then you're going to walk in obedience. Because he says, if you don't obey, you don't have life. You really obey, you have life, and you also will walk in obedience. Real belief bears real fruit. Another place that we see perseverance taught in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 4. Turn there with me, if you will. And that second blank says this, whoever drinks of the living water will never thirst again. John 4, Jesus interacting with the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know what Jesus is saying here to this woman? He's saying, are you thirsty? Are you looking for something that satisfies? Are you looking for a relationship that lasts? If you'll remember, the woman had been married five times, and the man she was now with was not her husband. This woman was desperate for living water, and Jesus says, it's me. I, I am the, the living water, and if you come and drink of this living water, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the idea of the perseverance of the saints is when you drink of the water of the Spirit or the water of salvation, the person of Christ, you'll never thirst again. You'll be sustained both that day and for the rest of your life and for all eternity. Another place where we see perseverance of the saints, number three, whoever believes in Jesus has passed from death to life. John 5, 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now that phrase, passed from death to life, if you hear the word of Christ and you believe in the Father who sent the Son, then you will receive eternal life and you will not be judged by the righteous judge of the universe. Rather, you will have passed from death to life. This spiritual journey of passing from death to life is a one-way street. You cannot go back on that road. If God saves you, you've passed from death to life, and you cannot go from spiritual life to spiritual death. If you're made spiritually alive, then the Bible says you will never die, and you cannot cross that great chasm that separates heaven from hell. You cannot undo what God has done. You cannot revert nor would you ever want to because you've been radically transformed with a new heart and with new desires and a new home. You've passed from death to life. Nowhere does the Bible hint at the fact that you can pass from life to death. Well, a fourth place we see the perseverance of the saints is in John chapter 6, and here we read that whoever eats, whoever eats the bread of life will never hunger again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so just as Jesus is the living water, he is also the bread of life. And when you believe in Jesus, you will never hunger again. You will never thirst again. Jesus is more than enough for all of your needs and all of your wants and all of your desires. He created you, and he fills you with that that truly satisfies. I mean, Jesus, the bread of life, it's not like the bread. John 6, 58 talks about the bread that came down from heaven that the fathers ate, but they still died. And so we're reminded in this chapter 6 of John, the bread of life is not like the manna in the wilderness that lasted for a day 
and then it turned moldy. The bread of Christ never turns into gravel in your mouth. People who eat the bread of this world will be hungry again, but people who eat the bread of, of Christ will never hunger again. The, the bread of heaven is the bread of life, and it's life eternal. A fifth place that we see the perseverance of the saints, number five, whoever follows Christ and keeps his word will never die. John 8, 11, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world, and when you see the light of Christ and you believe in him, you will follow him, and if you don't follow him, then you must not have really seen him. But if you had thought you saw him, but you're not following him, then you're not his. But if you see the light and you follow him, you're a Christ follower. You're no longer walking in the darkness, but you're walking in the light. And that's what Christ has called us to do. Look at that passage, even in John 10, 27, under the same point, following his voice. We've read this almost on every point, right? That my sheep hear my voice. Christ calls out to them and they come. They will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of his hand. No one will ever snatch them out of the Father's hand. Uh, Jesus here is calling his sheep by name and they come and they know his voice. And when, when Jesus gives his sheep eternal life, they will never perish and no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. This is one of the biggest fears, again, of someone who can lose their salvation. Well, what if I was saved and I'm in the hand of God, but what if, what if I get snatched out? And no one can ever snatch you out. And then the way the mind works is, well, what if I jump out? I know nobody can snatch me out, but what if I decide I don't want to be saved anymore? No, you're doubly secured right, in the hand of Christ and in the hand of his Father. No one is more powerful than God. No one will ever snatch you, including yourself. If you're in Christ, you cannot be kidnapped. All right? If you're in Christ, you cannot be hoodwinked. If you're in Christ, you cannot be taken out of his hand. The sixth place where we see perseverance of the saints is in John 14. Turn there with me, if you will. John 14, whoever believes in Jesus has a place prepared for them. Love John 14. Let your hearts be troubled. Uh, excuse me, let not your hearts be troubled, uh, right? Believe in God, believe also in me. So I, I love this passage of like, hey, you do have troubles in life, but don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now here in John 14, Jesus says that his Father's house has a lot of rooms. And Jesus says that he's going there to prepare a place for those who believe in God. And so let me ask you a question about this passage. If Jesus has gone ahead of us into heaven, and if he is preparing a place for his own, then what happens if you can lose your salvation? Does Jesus start tearing down rooms in the Father's house? Does he say something like, well, Jimmy didn't make it. I guess I'll have to go tear down that room. Oh, Sally decided that she wasn't a Christian after all. Let me go undo all the preparations I had made for her because now she's decided she's not a Christian. Could that happen? No, that would be like ridiculous, right? Jesus prepares a place for you and he's coming to take you where he is and he's already been there. He's come from there and he's returned to there and he's praying for you from there and he's preparing a place for you that will sustain you with eternal life to the very end. Number seven, 
whoever loves Christ and abides in him will not fall away. John 16, Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's referring to everything he taught in John 15 about him being the vine and us being the branches and God who is the vine dresser. He prunes the branches so they may bear more fruit, but the branches that do not bear any fruit, he says, they cut them away and take them into the fire. So why does Jesus teach us about the vine and the vine branches and the bearing of fruit? Well, he says in 16.1, it's to keep us from falling away. I mean, the passage is an encouragement, but it's also a warning that true Christians continue to abide in the vine. And as we abide in the vine, he abides in us. And Jesus prays to this end in John 17 that not one of us would be lost, right? That he's preserving our faith. And so we know that we're his. One last uh, place where I guess that, that wrapped it up, didn't it? That wrapped up what, what we wanted to say about here's seven places. I know we just kind of went through them quickly, but seven places in John that all teach perseverance, perseverance, perseverance. And so let's move to this last heading because I want you to see a couple of things here under C. How is it illustrated, how it is illustrated in the resurrection of Lazarus? Now, several people have been asking me throughout this series, how in the world are you going to illustrate Lazarus with the perseverance of the saints. I mean, the whole point is he came to life, but he died again. So your illustration breaks down, Tyson. You're done. It's all over. You should have just used that for the first four. Don't even try with this last one. Well, I'm going to try to, all right? I, I, because I believe there's something I want you to take note of. If you'll turn to John chapter 12, let me answer that question in three parts. Number one, Lazarus continued his relationship with Jesus. Right? Jumping ahead, go to John 12. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, it's pretty interesting. Part of the perseverance of the saints is that God will sustain a believer throughout his lifetime. And the believer that God saves will never fall away or fall out of grace. And the same is true with Lazarus. Lazarus went through a terrible sickness. And Lazarus stared death in the face and death overcame him. But this was not the end. Lazarus was raised from the dead. And Lazarus persevered in his relationship with Jesus. I mean, think about it. Lazarus didn't get angry. He didn't blame Jesus for anything. In fact, I would say that Lazarus's relationship only grew through his trial, and now his relationship with Jesus is closer than it had ever been. And the fact that Lazarus was able to have dinner with Jesus and recline with him at the table is a demonstration of the perseverance of this saint. Second way, I think we can see this illustrated with Lazarus. Number two, Lazarus continued to be a witness for Christ. He continued to be a witness for Christ. Look down at verses 9 through 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So after Mary 
anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, a large crowd came to see Jesus, and they came to see Lazarus. And by now, word had spread like wildfire that Lazarus had been in the grave for four days and had been raised from the dead. And maybe some in the crowd had been at the funeral, but they weren't there on the day where Lazarus came out of the tomb. And so they came because they wanted to see Lazarus. And on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. And this can only mean one thing. Lazarus was not a deterrent to Christ's ministry. He was a disciple of Christ, and he was a witness of Christ. I mean, if this story of Lazarus and his resurrection wasn't true, then Lazarus could have denied that it ever happened, or Lazarus could have tried to ruin Christ's reputation. Lazarus could have gone rogue, but he didn't. He continued to be a witness for Christ. In fact, because of the perseverance of Lazarus, the chief priest made plans to have Lazarus put to death again. Perseverance of the saints does not mean you avoid death altogether. It means that in life and in death, you persevere, and that is all by grace. A third way perseverance of the saints is illustrated would be verses 16 through 19, that Lazarus continued to make a difference in how the world saw Jesus. His disciples did not understand these things at first when Jesus was glorified, but then they remembered these things had been written about him and been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So in the context of the, the triumphal entry of Jesus, we're told in this text that part of the reason the triumphal entry was so grand is that Lazarus still had something to do with it. Like Lazarus was around, they had seen the sign, they were more excited than ever, they wanted to be there, they had heard what Jesus had done, and Lazarus was kind of a part of this whole event. And Lazarus was raised from the dead to show us that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And Lazarus has persevered in the faith, so much so that the whole world came out to see Christ and they were interested in what he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. And so I would say that based on what we've seen from Lazarus, I think that it's safe to say that when he did die again for the second time, he was preserved forever by the sovereign grace of God. Lazarus was a recipient, as every believer is, of eternal life. He never lost his salvation. He was faithful to the end, and God was faithful to keep him and to never let him go. Perseverance of the saints is at the end of the line of the doctrines of grace. And if God determines to save a man or a woman or a child, he will save them until the very end. And if we truly understand salvation, then we will understand it is not our work, but God's. And all of us have run away from God, but God has set his glorious love upon us he has predestined us to be saved by Christ, called us to faith and repentance, justified us, adopted us as sons and daughters, begun a work of sanctification within us that will continue until the day of Christ Jesus, and he will glorify us at the completion of his plan. How encouraging is that? To know that you, if you're in Christ, are secure in the love of Christ forever. You never have to doubt. He'll never disown you. You never have to look at your life as primary. 
You always look to Christ, and you always see that what he's done for you is for his glory and all by his grace. And how appropriate it is that when we think about tulip, we think about these doctrines of grace, for that's what it is. You're saved by grace. And I would say as you head out of here today and you kind of reflect on this series that these doctrines ought to affect our worldview, everything we think about God, and everything that we think about salvation, and everything we think about the world ought to be affected in some way by our understanding of these beautiful doctrines of the sovereignty of God in salvation. It ought to change how you approach life. Secondly, these doctrines ought to affect our worship. I used to worship as an Arminian, but I've never worshiped like I've worshiped as someone who understands a little deeper these doctrines because it just makes me want to beat my chest and say, woe to me, God, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a, I can't get over, I'll spend all of eternity not fully understanding why God would choose me, why he would elect me, why he would save me. The beauty of his plan and his sovereignty, it affects me every single Sunday. I just can't help it. I can't help but think about it. Third, these doctrines ought to affect our witness. I evangelized a lot when I was an Arminian, but by the grace of God, I have a whole lot more confidence and boldness in God's work, in his power, and in his word, instead of manipulating conversations. I mean, I used to get the gospel out so fast that I would then say, hey, let's pray. You want to pray? You want to go to hell? You don't want to go? You don't want to go to hell? You don't? Let's pray. Come on. Bow your head. Come on. Let's go. Let's pray right now. And it was like, let's do the deal. And then I'd just look at him and be like, all right, you know, love God. Now, as a more, you know, reformed in my thinking, I, I mean, maybe sometimes I'm too slow. I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? Because this will cost you your whole life. This is everything, right? But if God's doing this work in you, fear not. The, the, the living God who calls you out of darkness into light, knowing that he will save all of those that he's called to himself. I pray that we as a church could better understand and glorify God as we better understand his sovereignty and our salvation for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive in one last time in this particular series, though we enjoy studying the doctrines of grace, all the doctrines of your word, the sufficiency of scripture and the inerrancy of scripture and uh, the infallibility of scripture, God. We love studying your word in a way that just helps shape us and, and mold us into better understanding such beautiful truths that would impact our life in a way that would cause us to leave here this morning so thankful for the persevering grace that you provide. So thankful that just as we weren't saved by our own will, that we are not held by our own will, that we've been saved by your will, by your power, and we'll be held onto forever by your will and your power. What a comfort that is to us today. And so God, as we continue to think and pray and study, I know that there's passages that, that Christians differ on, but overall, God, I just pray we would come together and be blessed today to learn and be reminded of these truths that would cause us to sing out and live a life that's been radically transformed, all for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.